Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken, the Forsaken. Your queen appreciates your allegiance. We are the Forsaken. Grand Nagus. Thank you, my queen. Hello and welcome to episode 114 of Corpse One Radio. I hope you're all doing well. You're all healthy. I've picked out a few things that I thought you might like. So first off, we're going to hear So So Breezy's explanation on Shadowlands Endgame with the facts and fiction of mainly the renown system which people refer to the next incarnation of the AP system which in my opinion it totally is not but Sol will explain more much more expertly than I can why that is not the case and I'm gonna give a couple of comments of my own after the segment because telling you my point of view before he did his segment would kind of defeat the purpose of him introducing it so yeah let's do it that way after that we have Hiromoridex charm with a song and then to end it we have the story of Sally Whitemane and the Scarlet Crusade by Novel 87 I would though like to, before we get to Seoul, like to mention a few things. I have started streaming again on twitch.tv slash corpserunradio. So if you would like to stop by, say hello, and watch some non-expert casual beta testing, you can do so at the show's channel. I usually alternate between playing the beta at the moment and playing a WoW Challenges Green Man character. If you're not familiar with what the WoW Challenges are, I'm not going to go into it too much because that's not the place. The WoW Challenges have their own podcast, but just a little hint at what it is. Basically, it's a hardcore version of leveling in WoW. So first rule is do not die. And that's basically that's basically it. Then there are additional rules like gear restrictions, buff, buffs are not allowed. Um, and all those additional rules can be found on the wowchallenges.com website. So if you want to go there, if you want to, to check out hardcore wow so to speak that's something that you are most welcome to do especially since at the moment if you don't have access to beta or if you're not interested in beta and you've got nothing better to do that might be a thing for you that you might find interesting and challenging for that matter yeah yeah so come and hang out i'm usually announcing my streams a couple of hours ahead of the stalling of the stream on the twitter so the best way to find out when i'm going to stream is to follow the show on on twitter and then come and join and say hi on the twitch which apparently is going to become prime gaming soon but I'm not going to go into corporate politics and renaming, rebranding. That's not where I'm going. I just wanted to to throw that in there quickly because apparently we are about to have to get used to new terms and new names 
fairly soon. I already saw the the prime gaming uh, term being used on the website once earlier today. So it is a thing, apparently. But again, that's beside the point of the show. Let's get to So So Breezy and his Shadowlands and Game Breakdown Facts versus Fiction. Here is So So Breezy. Hello, it's Sol with another video, and today I'm going to dive into Renown, the framework, or the backbone of our daily routine in WoW Shadowlands as it's currently known in the beta. Otherwise known as literally Artifact Power 2.0, the new endless grind slash time played monthly active users Bobby Kotick. Anyway, anyway, why should you care about Renown, and why is it the nightmare that you dread? Or is it actually that bad? Renown is what you could call the road that you travel with a beginning and an end and stuff that you get along the way. It has 40 ranks, and by its end, you'll have gotten that much closer to unlocking the power of your Covenant Sanctum, recruited powerful adventurers to send out on missions, fully bonded with your three soulbinds aka talent trees, and maybe, just maybe because beta, you'll have fulfilled the necessary requirements to fly. So post end game progression that goes beyond just gear. Huh. This might sound super familiar, but it's actually a big contrast against the infinite grind slash diminishing returns of artifact power in Legion and artifact power again in Battle for Azeroth. Renown is more like how PvP conquest works, but even more forgiving if you're catching up. So here's how it works. As I mentioned, there are a total of 40 Renown levels, and you can gain up to two Renown a week, meaning that in theory, if you're playing on day one of Shadowlands, it's gonna take 20 or so weeks before maximum Renown is obtainable for anybody. Based on testing and some additional information from Wowhead, you can earn up to five Renown from your Covenant campaign, so now we're down to like 18 weeks of well, time-gating, if you want to be so crude. Every week, you're given two weekly quests to earn renown. So far, these quests are always the same. One is to save 15 souls from the Maw, or Torghast, and the other is to collect anima. We just don't know how much anima, and there's not enough information to say how hard it's going to be to collect anima. I'm going to assume that it's something along the lines of filling up this bulb over here, and I kind of expect more kinds of weekly quests to be added just for the sake of rotating and a little bit of variety, but for now, we'll assume that these two quests are it. You'll be collecting a lot of souls and anima to up your renown, and these currencies are used to restore your Covenant Sanctum to unlock fun perks like faster travel, zone buffs, adventures for your followers, and more. But it does not directly translate into player power. In fact, here's what's funny. You don't even need to have a powered up Sanctum in your guild application. It doesn't need to be tracked in Raider IO, and it's not going to give you access to raids or dungeons. That distinction is extremely important, and that's going to be more apparent as we continue on. Let's provide some context for these weekly quests. So, save 15 souls from the Maw or Torghast. While climbing Torghast, there's a very good chance that you'll run into an anima power that literally gives you 10 freed souls. Warlocks have more anima powers that help them obtain freed souls, making this quest very trivial if you enjoy Torghast. If. Otherwise, out in the Maw, there are rares and side objectives that reward souls, so completing this weekly over the course of a, of a week is very easy, based on the current beta. By contrast, Anima is a different story, and I consider the systems around obtaining it to be at an early state. The biggest source of Anima at the moment is to complete Covenant Callings, basically emissary quests that could include completing four world quests in a region by filling up a bar or collecting Anima. Yeah, it's disorganized and incomplete to the point where that's pretty much the most that I can say about it. But in fewer words, fewer, fewer words, completing the two weekly quests means you're optimal. You're free to do whatever activities that you like. 
So there's no more chain running Maw of Souls dungeons or non-stop island grinding because your raid leader needs you to squeeze just a little bit more item level out. Once you reach that goal, further efforts, as in the collection of souls and anima, will still have meaning, but it's not going to be the kind that's going to get you higher on the charts or qualified for a raid. But what if you're not optimal, right? What if it's not the start of Shadowlands? What if you started late? What if you're now working on an alt and you're weeks or months behind? Instead of crazy math and artifact knowledge spreadsheets, a simple catch-up will be in place from the very beginning. If you're playing catch-up, Renown will simply pop up randomly as an available reward from maybe a world quest, or it might drop from the end of a dungeon. I said Renown is more like the Conquest system, but it's not like Conquest because Renown isn't a bar that you fill up. If you're weeks and weeks behind on Conquest, you have weeks and weeks worth of grinding to do. It's a one-to-one, -one, and that's not catch-up, that's just preventing you from falling impossibly behind, which is mathematically fair, but you're clearly punished for procrastinating. It's not the same with Renown, so here's an example. Let's pop back to these weekly quests, filling up on anima or saving souls. You know what? F anima and f that quest too. I'm not going to do it, but I love me some Torghast. So if I never farm anima, I will still earn renown just fine. I will be a point or so behind at most, but I'll always complete at least one of the weeklies and all I need are my eyeballs to spot a world quest that gives renown. And if I don't do any of the weeklies, and I just get my renown from running Mythic Plus, so be it. Being behind by two renown is hardly the end of the world. And after a few months, assuming that the renown cap won't go up until like patch 9.1, we'll all be at the same level for a good long time, and I'll have saved myself a whole lot of work. But we've kind of identified a kind of quirk, haven't we? Under this catch-up system, people catching up do a lot less work than the people who want to stay fully caught up each and every week. Competitive players will do the weeklies every week to stay on pace, but theoretically, if I were to start playing Shadowlands a few months in, I can completely avoid the weeklies and get caught up at a very reasonable pace. If Flying is in fact tied to Renown and not Reputation, as was stated earlier, I think we're in a much better place compared to the multi-part Pathfinders of Legion and Battle for Azeroth. And personally, I'm okay with this. I'm not a mythic raider, but I will diligently do my weeklies because I'm a psycho. No, it's because I do want to do the extra activities. I will farm souls and anima anyway. I just think it's really cool that there is a clear separation between a more casual and a more hardcore mindset, because you're hardly being punished if you're behind, and even for hardcore players, this method of staying caught up is way better than 8 hour long island streams, right? So there's fewer than 20 weeks to cap renown. With these measurements, the Mythic World First Race is likely to be over well before people hit the cap, and it's been stated already by Blizzard, so they know this. So this speaks to the power of soulbinds and conduits. Like, are they so worthless that the system has no meaning at the top level? Is this another one of those quirks? I think there are a handful of people who will draw that conclusion, especially after being used to their dependence on the likes of Artifact Weapons, the Heart of Azeroth, and Essences. It's going to take some time for them to realize that Soulbinds don't quite pack the same punch. But now let's get to understanding what these Renown unlocks mean for you as you progress. With each level of Renown, you get one of the following. A row for one of your Soulbinds is unlocked. That's pretty self-explanatory. And the final row of your Soulbinds unlocks simultaneously at 39 Renown. So there's definitely a far-off goal to work towards for everybody. The level of your Covenant Sanctum is also gated by your Renown level. There are three milestones to hit for most of your upgrades, but there are additional upgrades for your Covenant's unique activity, like the Path of Ascension for the Kyrian, or the Queen's Conservatory for the Night Fae. You can unlock the maximum potential of your Covenant upgrades at 37 Renown. Going backwards a little bit, at 14 Renown, you're rewarded a Legendary Recipe. Which one it is? 
I have no idea, but I have a feeling that it's one of the generic legendary powers that are available to all classes, so this might be an awesome unlock or something to be depressed about, depending on your class or spec. Renown is also tied to the quality of world quest drops that are made available. This starts off as a clear nerf to using world quests as a way to quickly pump up item level, especially as an alt who wants to gear on a budget. As you know, currently you can up the average item level of world quest drops simply by having a higher average item level yourself in order to qualify for this better gear. With it being tied to renown, one could argue that gearing up through world content is going to be a lot slower, but it does have a bit more context to it. It's like, as you're helping out the Shadowlands, the Shadowlands helps back, that sort of thing. And the item level bumps here end at 39 Renown. Unfortunately, it's not known what that item level cap is going to be. At 23 Renown, you're rewarded a pet, which you know, you know, it's, it's nice. And from the Wowhead article that revealed this information in the first place, there are a lot of blank spots. I can at least say from testing that some of these blank spots will be followers to help you complete adventures, to help you get more snazzy things. But some of these spaces here could also be reserved for other rewards like a cosmetic ensemble, a mount, and maybe at 40 Renown, the Pathfinder achievement that will earn you flying. And that's, that's kind of it. So you might be thinking, wait, 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 hold on, that, that can't be everything. Systems on top of systems on top of systems. That's what the YouTube person told me, Soul. Where is my endless grinding narrative? Well, let's look at the parts of Shadowlands that will affect your throughput directly. Conduits is essentially a library that we unlock by killing bad guys, clearing dungeons, doing quests, maybe reputation. And according to Blizzard, most conduits will have multiple ways to earn them. So maybe that conduit you really want comes from PvP, which you don't do. Fortunately, it's also going to drop in a dungeon, which you do do. <laughs> but if you don't like PvP or dungeons, well, Damn, that kind of sucks, but you can't blame them for trying, right? It's also worth mentioning that conduits are unique to your class and spec, but the vibe that I'm getting is that the whole blood of the enemy scenario that a lot of us felt stuck with doesn't seem like it's going to be a thing in Shadowlands. Legendary powers are expected to be more strict than conduits when it comes to requirements. In fact, I think there will be a good bit of friction between players, because while legendary recipes are on the onus of the player to obtain, and as a reminder, unlocking them is account-wide, all but one of the materials used to make legendaries are on the open market. I expect gold to move in large quantities in Shadowlands, and you can get a piece of that pie with the right discipline. The component that players will be farming for on their own will be Soul Ash, found only in Torghast. The difficulty is still TBD, but the goal is very simple. You climb the highest layer that you can in the two cell blocks that are made available each week, and then you'll earn all the currency from the floors that you skipped. This entire affair can take anywhere between one and two hours, and as a triple reminder, Farming anima and souls seems to only feed back into the Covenant Sanctum and its amenities, so it'll definitely be a thing for completionists like me who want to immerse themselves in their covenants, get fun perks, and more cosmetics. But it seems to be firmly separated from the notion of character progression at any competitive level. So let's wrap it up. Here's what you need to do each week to be optimal. Two weeklies comprised of farming souls and anima two Torghast climbs of each cell block for Soul Ash. That's it. Like, like, seriously, that's it. Everything else is done at your own time, from hunting for conduits and legendary recipes to the rep that's important to you, and those have their own kinds of caps to it. And then, of course, there's getting gear from dungeons or raids or PvP or crafting. There's farming for materials. So I guess profession cooldowns, you know, you want to keep up with those each day or so. But that's what it all boils down to. From all my observations and testing, Shadowlands seems to be an expansion that is arguably more accessible than previous ones from an endgame power progression standpoint. The post-game grind, Renown, is trivial compared to the philosophical conundrum that was artifact power and knowledge. Powerful legendaries will have a clear path towards obtaining and will include lots of involvement from the player economy. 
conduits are going to add a new layer of drops to farm for, but conduits that drop from raids and dungeons are on a separate roll table, meaning if that one weapon and conduit that you want drop from the same boss, you have two separate and equal rolls to obtain both. And of course, conduits have multiple sources, you can't forget that. Reputation isn't linked to Pathfinder, but it's still around to reward you with gear and cosmetics and recipes. Yeah, we're going back to that again. So hunting down cosmetics is a different and separate story, which does involve lots of farming of Torghast and the Maw, and fully juicing up your Covenant Sanctum. On top of those rewards, your character is going to feel that much more powerful, at least out in the world, with perks and bonuses that you worked for. So maybe I'm painting a pretty picture. I can't say for sure that Shadowlands is going to be a great expansion, but it certainly gives me an impression that it's shaping up to be great. I'm left excited for all that there is to do, and I'm relieved that I'm not going to feel pressured to run the same routine on all of my alts, except for, you know, maybe one of each covenant so I can mess with all those extra activities. I hope this cleared the air around Renown and some of the other endgame systems in Shadowlands, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them in a the comment below. You can expect more coverage and guides as we get closer to launch, so be sure to subscribe for that and all things Warcraft. Like this video if it was useful, and I hope to see you back soon. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay breezy. Thank you, Stoll. And yes, I'm excited too. I'm really excited about how the beta looks at the moment. The only aspect that I have that I'm not sure as to what's going to happen with is Torghast at the moment. I haven't been able to test it myself yet. But I'll eventually get to that. But yeah, back to the Renown. I'm really happy that it's not as grindy as the AP systems were, multiple, the two that we had. And that it is a system that only requires you to do a certain amount of tasks over the week and not basically requires you to do something per day. I'm really happy that they extended the requirement period, the completion period, to weekly rather than daily, which, as Sol said, doesn't prevent you from doing stuff on a daily basis, but you're more free to do stuff that you want not stuff that you are mandated to do to cover all your bases, so to speak. With that said, let's get to Hero Maradex and his video about top 10 raid bosses with the highest wipe counts in World of Warcraft. He states in the beginning that people didn't track wipe numbers in the beginning of the game, so it only pertains to the bosses where we have semi-accurate numbers, but he is going to tell you that himself. So here is Hero Maradex. In this video, we'll go over bosses in the game which had the highest wipe counts before the first skill was able to achieve the world first and its hardest difficulty. And at number 10, we have Mythic Blackhand from Blackrock Foundry and Warlords of Draenor, with a wipe count at 325 before the world first was achieved. Now, this might seem kind of a low number to make the top 10 list, as one might expect a whole bunch of bosses with wipe counts easily in the 500s. But here's the thing with the wipe count of certain bosses. Uh, before Wrath of the Lich King, they didn't really count the number of wipes it took to down a boss. And also, the average player was not as good as they are today, as many people have seen with classic servers being completely trivialized by modern metagaming. The average raider in Classic WoW didn't even use a flask, and having everyone pick up leatherworking for the Drums of Haste buff was considered crazy new top guild strategy in the late days of Burning Crusade, as it never occurred to them to min-max the point of picking a profession specifically for one of the items, giving them a great party-wide buff. Although, to be fair, just because the average player didn't use a flask doesn't mean the hardcore players didn't as well. They absolutely use as many consumables as possible. So, even though there were borderline unkillable bosses like Cthulhu and Kalthos, which went months without being killed even though they were available, there just simply aren't any numbers on those. So I'm just going to exclude them from the list. Now, long tangent aside, the reason Blackhand had a high wipe count was because it was very difficult. 
one of the hardest raid bosses of all time in fact, and the guild which got the number 2 kill had almost 2 times the amount of wipes for the world first, though this list won't be counting world seconds, so this boss only gets the number 10 on this list, as it was actually killed kind of quickly for how difficult it was. And at number 9 we have Mythic Jaina from the Battle of Dazar lore in Battle for Azeroth, clocking in at a total of 346 wipes before the world first was achieved. Jaina only had slightly more wipes than Mythic Blackhand, and was definitely not as difficult, but was still a very well-tuned fight nonetheless. In fact, it's probably one of my favorite fights in the games, as there's just so much about it that's visually appealing and thematic, but that's kind of irrelevant to this list. Why was the wipe count so high? Well, a couple of reasons. Modern players are good at taking more attempts and writing those attempts down. The fight itself was pretty difficult, and lasted a full raid clear. The guild who got the kill race changed basically their entire rate to trolls so they could take the voodoo shuffle racial, which slightly made one of the mechanics easier, as what the voodoo shuffle did was reduce the duration of movement impairing effects by 20%, and one of the main mechanics of the fight was the stacking debuff which freezes you when it hits 20 stacks, and it's technically counted as a movement impairing effect. So if everyone in the group was trolls, they could start phase 3 without any stacks after the intermission phase, which gave them a slight boost over all the other playable races. We haven't really seen massive race changes for a fight since Kill Jaden and Legion, so you know a fight is difficult when they think that's a viable strategy for bypassing one of its mechanics. All in all, excellent boss fight, also appropriately hard, but not one of the hardest of all time, maybe in the top 20. Some of the hardest raid bosses of all time don't have white counters, so they won't appear on this list. And at number 8 we have Queen Ajara from the Eternal Palace in Battle for Azeroth. Queen Ajara clocks in at 359 wipes before the world first was achieved, which is only 13 more wipes than Jaina, and is the boss which appears in the immediate raid tier following Battle for Dazara lore. Battle for Azeroth has a lot of high wipe counts in it, as to contrast some other very hard fights from the past, the Spine of Deathwing and Cataclysm, that fight only had 214 wipes before its world first, or Lei Shin in Throne of Thunder, another incredibly difficult boss who would make the top 15 of our hardest bosses of all time, only clocks in at 310 wipes. Gul'dan from Nighthold, 248, Heroic Lich King clocks in at only 170, Battle for Azeroth is a pretty good indicator of the power creep of final bosses. They've been making them harder and harder over the years, where they routinely get over 300 wipes before a world first is achieved, but that was not the case in the past. Now, why was Queen Ajara such a wipe fest? Well, obviously the fight is difficult, but also has this very fun and unique mechanic, where half of the mechanics in the raid require you to get out of line of sight of everything, which made things more complicated than they needed to be. And when I say fun and exciting, I mean when I update my video on the worst bosses of all time, I'm definitely going to include Queen Ajara there, because line of sight mechanics are not fun, and I don't think anyone really enjoyed them in such the number when doing Queen Ajara. But, various line of sight mechanics definitely made the fight more difficult than normal, which also definitely led to a higher than normal wipe count, but still at the low end of the list, even if it does beat out a lot of other bosses in the game's history. And at number 7 we have the Fallen Avatar from Tomb of Sargeras and Legion. The Fallen Avatar was the second to final boss in the instance, and clocks in at a total of 453 wipes before the world first was achieved, and is coincidentally one of the hardest bosses in the game's history, beating out a whole bunch of final bosses even. Now, what led to the Avatar Sargeras's much higher than normal wipe count? Well, to put it simply, the fight was kind of overtuned and had a handful of RNG instant death mechanics. You see, there was this mechanic in Phase 2 called Dark Mark, which was placed on three random raid members and would do AoE damage to them then throw them into the air. And the way to prevent your death was to have a whole bunch of people stack on you so that it would split the damage with them. And if this mark went on to any healer out of the three targets it chose, they could just not heal through the damage and would instantly wipe. And on top of that, there was a stacking constant AoE that did damage for how long the avatar was in the lava. But he would gain stacks a little bit too quickly, where he was wiping groups to unhealable AoE damage way earlier than he really should have been. So the first kill wasn't made until after the dark mark was changed to no longer target healers, and they gave more leeway to the constant AoE buff stacking for how long he was out in the green lava. Although Tomb of Sargeras was infamously difficult and overtuned, so with some of the encounter breaking stuff fixed, it was still very hard and took a lot of attempts. And at number 6 we have Archimonde from the Warlord of the Draenor expansion in Hellfire Citadel, clocking in at 472 wipes before the world first was achieved. 
Now, what contributed to this boss's high wipe count was pretty similar to Fallen Avatar, in that it had some incredibly hard-hitting mechanics as well as some of the most difficult raid coordination mechanics in the game's history, which really haven't been matched since. You see, there was this mechanic in Phase 1 and 2 called Doomfire, which one person had to soak as just part of the fight in order to complete it. And the person who soaked the Doomfire would just take a whole bunch of dot damage every second for basically the entire first two phases of the fight. And the amount of damage this person was taking was equivalent to around 70% of their health per second. And healing a player who's losing over half their health every second for two phases is understandably very difficult. And guilds were kind of able to heal through it thanks to a paladin's ability which lowered dot damage by a high amount. But it was still almost unhealable even with a direct counter to it and stacking paladin healers. So it wasn't until the Doomfire ridiculous damage was fixed that guilds were able to actually attempt real tries on the boss. And then there was a whole bunch of other super difficult mechanics that required add-ons to even complete. And basically it was so crazy that after Warlords of Draenor, Blizzard broke a lot of what the add-ons could show you during raid fights, and then also stopped putting mechanics into fights that required those kinds of add-ons in the first place. And at number 5 we have Yogg-Saron, Zero Lights, from Ulduar and the Wrath of the Lich King expansion. Now, Zero Lights was the hard mode version of Yogg-Saron, where you did the fight with no keepers helping you, and the fight is very much built around those keepers helping you during the fight, so it's all but impossible to do at current level without help from those mechanics. And it was fittingly incredibly difficult, to the point where players thought it was literally impossible. That was until one Chinese guild was able to get the kill by organizing an incredibly complicated kiting pattern using hunters as tanks. And they didn't get an exact number on their wipe count and merely mentioned that it took over 500 tries when giving their interview, which definitely makes sense for a fight that was thought impossible at the time by all top guilds. And then about a week after the first kill was achieved, Blizzard just kind of nerfed the fight by 25% and it was nowhere near as impossible as it used to be. And at number 4 we have Firelands Ragnaros from the Cataclysm expansion, which clocks in at over 500 attempts as well. So really, Yogg-Saron and Ragnaros are kind of tied in the middle of this list, as it was only given a vague amount of wipe attempts rather than a specific number. Though, with how difficult everyone agrees Heroic Rag was, even making it the number 7 spot on my hardest raid bosses of all time list, having a wipe count of over 500 is entirely reasonable. Now, what contributed to the high wipe count for this fight? Well, it's one of the longest fights of all time. It also comes in at number 7 on my longest raid fights ever list, clocking in at around 17 minutes on average. With a 17 minute long boss fight that's also one of the hardest boss fights, it's really easy to accidentally make one little mistake which completely wipes the group, especially in a fight that's chock full of instant wipe mechanics. And there was even a mechanic in the final phase of the fight where you had to stand in these little frost patches not burn to death to the constant ticking fire damage, and Ragnaros would sometimes hit players with an ability who were standing too close together in stacks of three which would also destroy any ice patches on the floor, and they did not regrow. So if you got hit by this mechanic for stacking in the mechanic that was there to make you not die, it was cause for an instant wipe. Although this mechanic was a little bit too difficult to deal with, so after the world first was achieved, Blizzard removed that mechanic altogether pretty shortly afterwards in Hotfix, which is pretty rare for Blizzard. Generally, they don't remove mechanics from fights when they nerf them, unless they know they messed up and made it too hard, like they did with the Magma Geyser mechanic. And at number 3, we have 10-man heroic Garrosh, clocking in at 638 attempts before the world first was achieved. Miss the Pandaria was the last expansion in which 10 and 25-man modes dropped equivalent item level gear, and was thus considered equal in endgame content. But this was only a thing for two expansions. And generally, the 25-man modes of those two expansions were the more difficult ones, but when Paragon got their first kill in Hero Garrosh, they actually accomplished it by single healing the fight with the Holy Priest, which was definitely not standard practice for world-first boss kills. In fact, it was probably this accomplishment that is probably why the hype count was as high as it was, because only running one healer for such a high-level fight like Hero Garrosh means you can't really make any mistakes, and Garrosh is also one of the longest fights in the game's history as it made at the number 9 spot on my list of the longest fights of all time video. So, having to go through a 15 plus minute long boss fight with one healer who's barely able to heal you through the unavoidable damage is pretty difficult. So with almost no margin for error, the high wipe count definitely makes sense. And at number 2 we have Kill Jaden from the Tomb of Sargeras in Legion, clocking in at 654 wipes before the world first was achieved. 
Now, this is the second boss from Tomb of Sargeras on this video, and it absolutely appears in my hardest raid bosses of all time list as well. Tomb of Sargeras was just a very difficult raid altogether. Now, what contributed to this boss's high wipe count was just an incredible amount of overtuning and bugs during the fight, which takes me about 10 minutes to go over in detail in my video on the hardest raid bosses of all time. So, to summarize it, there were a lot of mechanics in the fight that did too much damage for them to heal through, and there was also mechanics that knocked people off the platform which instantly killed them, which were too difficult to avoid, so Blizzard had to nerf a whole bunch of abilities to stop doing so much damage, and the entire raid race changed to goblins to get an extra jump to avoid AoE. And after finally getting to the final phase of the fight, they were hit with an unhealable dot, similar to the Doomfire dot from Archibond, only on everyone in the raid and at the same time, while also a whole bunch of other hard mechanics were going on. And it was so hard that the world first raid team on the fight literally stopped playing until Blizzard fixed it mid-progression. Kil'jaeden is kind of infamous for being hard, and for being way overtuned, and there hasn't really been a boss that has topped it since. And at number one, we have Unat from the Crucible of Storms in Battle for Azeroth, clocking in at 731 wipes before the World First was achieved, easily being the highest amount of wipes on any raid boss before the World First. Now, there are a couple of World Seconds that have higher wipe counts, but this list is specifically only talking about World First. Now, what led to this fight's crazy high wipe count was one mechanic in Phase 1 called Unstable Resonance, which was an ability that would put three marks on two-thirds of the raid, who would then have to run to one of the other artifacts that another player was holding that was similar to the mark that was placed on them, in order to get rid of it before it exploded and killed them and everyone around them. But, if you ran through another player who had a different mark than you, then you would also trigger the mark to explode early. And what made this particularly difficult for top raiders to accomplish was that there was also a whole bunch of other mechanics that happened at the exact same time that the marks went out, which made it very easy for one person to accidentally wipe the entire raid. And since this mechanic happened in the first phase, it was real easy for raids to just try again quickly. Eventually, Blizzard nerfed the mechanic, where they gave players a little bit more time to run to the mark before it exploded, and they also changed the other mechanics in Phase 1 to not overlap with the marks going out anymore. And once they made this change, there was still another mechanic in the fight that made it difficult, but players were actually able to make it to the final phases, and not wiping an incredible amount of times in the first phase anymore. So, because this fight had an incredibly difficult mechanic in the first phase, while also just being a hard fight overall, meant that guilds were wiping very early, very often, which allowed them to rack up gigantic wipe counts before they eventually got a kill after the first phase mechanic was fixed. So its number is kind of inflated, but it's also one of the hardest fights of all time, making it in my top 10 list as well. The only fight from Battle for Azeroth that made that list, so it definitely deserves its high wipe count, even if it's not the hardest fight in the game's history. Alright, and that's the list. to join you, Dora Jolly Rail, our captain's three. So unite all the pirate crews for me. We want you to join our crew and steal the key from a perky pub. Drink alcohol and pirate bro, cause we want you to join our crew. We want you to join our crew and steal the key from a perky pub. Drink alcohol and pirate bro, cause we want you to Join our crew. Drink, 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 
here for Ashvane's lead And heard great tales of Harlan's sweet greed His quest to unite all the scurvy crews But they're constantly drunk and swimming in booze hey. We entered the ring with a lightning look pig Survived the shell of Tortolan Ludwig Now Shark Punch's title owls must be So give all your loyalties to me We want you to join our crew And steal the key from a perky pug Alcohol and pirate bra Cause we want you to join our crew We want you to join our crew And steal the key from a perky pug Should alcohol and pirate bra Cause we want you to join our crew Check their teeth for gold, boys The rest is shark food recruit has arrived. This'll be fun. We want you to join our crew and steal the key from a perky pub. Drink alcohol and pirate bro. Cause we want you to join our crew. We want you to join our crew and steal the key from a perky pub. Drink alcohol and pirate bro. Cause we want you to join our crew. Drink, drink, Thank you, Hero Marodex, and thank you, Charm, for the Freehold song. It's quite a different type of song than we usually get to hear from her. So the last segment I have for you guys today is Noble 87's lore about Sally Whitemane, the last boss in the Scarlet Monastery, and one of the one of the horsemen. She's also part of Heroes of the Storm as a hero. But yeah, I don't want to go into too much. Let's hear the story as it's told by Noble 87. Hello everyone. A little while ago, they added Sally Whitemane as a brand new hero in Heroes of the Storm, which got me itching to cover her story. But since back then we were still in the Battle for Azov rush, I just didn't really have the time for it. Better late than never, I suppose. Let's talk about the story of Whitemane and the Scarlet Crusade. The light has spoken! Little Sally Whitemane can be found within the caverns of time at the old version of South Shore. Here, we see her running around with her friends like little Jimmy Vishash and Renaud Mograine. Running around without a care in the world, but dark times were heading to the lands of Lordaeron. The Lich King recruited Kelfuza to spread the plague across the lands, a plague not only designed to kill, but also turn its victims into the undead. Now, of course, humanity didn't just roll over and let all of this happen. Prince Arthur's Menefil, together with Jaina Proudmoore and their forces, they were sent out to investigate and deal with the problem. They uncovered that the plague was being spread through the grain, the very food meant to sustain their people, and they confronted a man behind all of this. Leave well enough alone. Your curiosity will be the death of you. Are you responsible for this plague, Necromancer? Is this cult your doing? Yes. I ordered the Cult of the Damned to distribute the plagued grain, but the sole credit is not mine. What do you mean? I serve the Dreadlord, Malganus. He commands the scourge that will cleanse this land and establish a paradise of eternal darkness. And what exactly is this scourge meant to cleanse? Why, the living, of course. His plan is already in motion. Seek him out at Stratholm if you need further proof. Kelfuzat was found again, and this time he didn't make an escape. Arthur struck him down, but this didn't end the threat. The plague was still out there, so they journeyed to Stratholm, only to find that they were already too late. Oh no. We're too late. These people have all been infected. They may look fine now, but it's just a matter of time before they turn into the undead. What?! This entire city must be purged. How can you even consider that? There's got to be some other way. Damn it, Uther. As your future king, I order you to purge this city. You are not my king yet, boy. Nor would I obey that command even if you were. Then I must consider this an act of treason. Treason? Have you lost your mind, Arthas? Have I? 
Lord Uther, by my right of succession and the sovereignty of my crown, I hereby relieve you of your command and suspend your paladins from service. Arthas, you can't just... It's done! Those of you who have the will to save this land, follow me. The rest of you, get out of my sight. You've just crossed a terrible threshold, Arthas. Arthas saw no other way of saving his people than to end their lives, despite those close to him, like Jane and Ufer, trying to change his mind. He gave the order to suspend the Paladins of the Silver Hand, an organization formed way back when, when the Horde invaded for the first time, but Ufer and others, they still had a King Terranus, who was not down with what his son was doing. When Arthas finally made the journey to Northrend to confront Melganus, his father ordered his son to come home, a request that the prince ignored. He would go on to pick up Frostmourne and claim his vengeance upon the Dreadlords, in exchange for the mere cost of a piece of his soul and becoming an agent of the Lich King, that which he tried so hard to fight against. When he returned home, he greeted his father with the tip of his blade, and he destroyed the kingdom. Many paladins, like Ufer, they fell to Arthas the Death Knight, but those that remained, those that still tried to fight for the people, they rallied behind heroes like Sadan Dafrohan and Alexandros Mograine. Those of you that are familiar with the story of the Ashbringer, you might recognize the name Mograine, as with this holy blade, he brought righteous vengeance upon the undead. A near unstoppable force, something that the Dreadlords took notice of, so they hatched a plan to take care of him. First, they set a trap at Strathholm, where Dovrohan was separated from his comrades and cornered by the Dreadlord Belnazar. He slew the paladin and took up residence within his shell, infiltrating their order from within. This gave him access to the children of Mograine, specifically Renault, the eldest of the two, and he worked on turning him against his father and his brother Darien. There was already a rift since his father, he kind of favored Darien, and Belnazar, he preyed upon the darkness within Renault's soul convincing him to betray his father in exchange for great power and prestige. The eldest agreed, and he lied to his father, convinced him that Darien had been kidnapped by the undead and taken to Strathholm. With all haste, Alexandros and Fairbanks, a close friend and trusted advice to their father, they rode to Strathholm right into a trap. Countless undead were waiting for them there, and while Fairbanks simply fell under their numbers, Mograine, he kept slicing them down until countless turned into only a few, and even those few fell before the Ashbringer. The battle had been endless, Mograine was tired, and he had dropped his weapon. This was the opportunity that his son had been waiting for. As Renault appeared, he picked up his father's blade and he stabbed him in the back. Alexandros was betrayed by his own son, and even worse, his body was claimed by the now lich Kelfuzad, and he went to work. Working on twisting his thoughts and dreams, until all that remained was the Death Knight Mograine, one of the four horsemen wielding the corrupted Ashbringer. <laughs> In the meantime, their order was not doing so well. They found out about Alexandros' death. Fairbanks had actually survived the trap of Strathholm, but as he tried to expose Renault, he was placed in chains. Belnazar was still covering for Renault, corrupting him from within, and while some suspected that a dark force had taken hold of Tafrahan and his closest followers, they simply had no evidence. Some of them wanted to recruit help from different races against the Scourge. Others believed that the organization should remain pure. Their suspicions and different ideals, it created division between the paladins. The holy warriors, they splintered into two separate factions. Whereas the Scarlet Crusade, they deceived Renault Mograine as the first commander. While others, they formed the organization known as the Argendon, which Darien Mograine joined. Belnazar retained full control over the Scarlet Crusade. It was just the army that he'd been searching for, and it soon became synonymous with corruption and extremism. The Silver Hand failed, Paladin. Join us. Take up the path of vengeance. Yes, we get it. You're edgy. Congratulations. Can we move this along? All of this brings us back to Sally, as at a young age she witnessed her family succumb to the horrific plague of undeath as they were traveling through northern Lordaeron. She was then forced to destroy her parents and siblings when they rose as mindless scourge minions, leaving her wrecked by guilt and rage. Ever since that day, the fearsome priestess had found fulfillment and pleasure in only one thing, the destruction of the undead. Within the Scarlet Crusade, she found a perfect organization to fulfill that wish. Now, of course, having a Dreadlord secretly lead the organization, that led to quite some dark and disturbing things. The Headless Horseman, for example, that came out of Belnazar's dark manipulations. While the organization as a whole, they became more and more fanatic. When Sylvanus and the Forsaken laid claim to the capital, the Crusades, they did not care that they had regained their free will and that they had stepped away from the Lich King. To the Scarlets, they were just undead, and as time went on, they could no longer see the difference between the living or the undead. 
All that opposed them, they were eradicated, quite a threat to the world, something that played out in classic World of Warcraft. But lore-wise, the story might be what happens in the comics, rather than what happens in-game. It's in the comics, where we read about Daria Mograine and the Argent Dawn as they infiltrate Naxxramas in an attempt to save his father. In the end, Alexandros is slain, but his spirit is still tied to the corrupted Ashbringer, which whispers to his son to take him to his brother, take him to the Betrayer Renault within the Scarlet Monastery. Once there, the spirit of the father shows up to slay Renault, and the story ends with Darian being forced to sacrifice himself to stop Kelfuzad and the Scourge. But by doing so, he delivers himself into the hands of the dead and the damned. He would go on to wield the corrupted Ashbringer in the service of the Lich King. Meanwhile, in-game, we had two different quest givers that led us to the monastery. The Horde was asked to go in by Dark Ranger Felonara, considering that she's an undead, she's not a big fan of the Scarlets. For the Alliance, you met up with Joseph the Awakened, a former crusader that had requested aid to help him take out the leaders of the Scarlet Crusade and actually reform it. Joseph joined them as a young paladin, eager to cleanse the world of evil. Little did he know of the dark truth to these fanatics. Back then, back in Classic, the place was still separated into four different sections. We had the graveyards, the library, the armory and the cathedral. Our quest began in the graveyard, where we found Sally's old friend Vishash working as an interrogator for the Scarlets, ripping those delicious secrets of his victim's flesh. He is the cruelest man that Velonara has ever met, extracting information from her mother during the initial outbreak of the plague. He, together with Thanos, also take great pleasure in torturing new recruits to ensure that they are pure. They are the first that we need to slay, after which you could take on the library with Arcanist Doan and Howmaster Loxie. They maintain their powerful defenses that protect their fellow Scarlets, while they're also busy teaching new recruits to wield the arcane arts. Joseph believes that the light is the only true path, so they have to go. Our adventure has quite the effects on Joseph though, as he starts out as the Awakened, but slowly but surely he becomes the crazed until finally the insane. Herod, the Scarlet Champion, residing with the Armory, he will be our next target, as that's the place where they're training new warriors, and Joseph believes that he's no true champion at all. It's he that should be the champion of the Scarlet Crusade, that dirty thief stole what should be rightfully his. Now despite what Joseph might want, the Scarlet Commander Mograine and High Inquisitor White Mane, they refuse to make him the new Scarlet Champion. Of course, that doesn't sit well with Joseph the Insane, so he wants us to slay them so that he can re-establish the Order as it always should have been, with him at the head of things. He'll take care of the Forsaken and the Scourge for good, even plans to take on the Undercity, while Dark Ranger Velonara, she wants us to do the same, but instead, she of course claims the Monastery for the Forsaken. So yeah, this is the bit where the game conflicts with the comics, as Renault by this point is already slain by the spirit of his father. Yet all the same, here we see him standing with Sally, and the fight, it was quite awesome, as you first started with just Renault, and pulling him without clearing the cathedral first, that would cause all of them to charge at you. Infidels. They must be purified! After bringing him down, Inquisitor White Mane actually shows up, not quite ready to let go for champion. Mograine has fallen? You shall pay for this treachery! The entire party is put to sleep as he uses her command over the light to bring him back. Arise, my champion. At your side, milady. Now you have to deal with two bosses at the same time. And of course, the healer goes first. Mograine... Heroes, brave and crazy enough to take on classic Naxxramas, they had a chance to obtain the corrupted Ashbringer for themselves, and like Darian, they too could take it to the monastery. Again, the spirit of his father slays the treacherous son, and even High Inquisitor Fairbanks is released from his terrible curse. Sadly, Sally doesn't really seem to play a role in these events, now the plans of Joseph and Velonara, they seem to have been quite ambitious, as the Scarlet Crusade is very hard to get rid of. Countless adventurers have tried to wipe them out. With Rolf the Lich King, we saw the return of Darian Mograine and the Death Knights. They too took on the Scarlets, their survivors now calling themselves the Scarlet Onslaught, as they set sail for Northrends. There, they would once again fall under the leadership of a Dreadlord, Melganus this time around. While Belnazar, he was taken on during Classic, but since Dreadlords, they cannot die on Azeroth, he too made a return. While the Scarlets just kept on coming back, time didn't stand still. Banshee Queen Sylvanas Windrunner, she was able to claim revenge upon Arthas for placing that curse of undeath upon her, and with her goal accomplished, she decided to kill herself. The only problem is that there was no eternal bliss waiting for her, instead it was a realm of torment. So it was that she made a bargain with the Valkyr. They would be released from the new Lich King control. In exchange, they would take Sylvanas' place in Hell, and even allow her to resurrect new Forsaken. This led to the resurrection of the one and only Lillian Voss, who wasn't too happy with what they'd done to her. Unable to come to grips with being a Forsaken, she sought out her former life. 
her father, High Priest Benedictus Vos, had trained her to be a Scarlet Crusader. And now his own daughter was one of those creatures that they fought against. He put out the order to have her executed, which, as you might imagine, Lillian couldn't really appreciate. Instead, it was she who executed her father and then disappeared for a little while until the time of Mr. Pandaria. It was then when we found a hooded crusader, Lillian in disguise, who guided us through the revamped bastion of the Scarlet Crusade, with now only two wings to party through, the Scarlet Halls and the Scarlet Monastery. We killed a whole bunch of the crusaders again, but the problem is that they just keep on coming back even after death. Behind those resurrections, that is High Inquisitor White Mane. With her death, so goes the crusade, and to give them their final rest, Lillian is going to need two swords of legends. The Blades of the Anointed are addressed here in the monastery, which makes it easy enough to gather them, and once more we confront the Inquisitor, this time not with Commander Mograine, he's been replaced by Commander Durand. My legend begins now! But my legend... You shall pay for this treachery. Arise, my champion. Mograine. The fight, it still pretty much plays out the same. White Mane resurrects her champion again. We take them on and we take them out. But this time, by plunging those blades into her corpse, they should stay dead for good. As a bonus, Lillian now has some very special blades, which should serve her well as Colomance and her fight against the Necromancers. But not even this was good enough to wipe out the Scarlet Crusade. Not even this was good enough to put an end to Sally White Mane forever. With Legion, the Knights of the Evenblade, under orders of the Lich King, they went out to recruit brand new horsemen to help them fight in the war against the Legion. Now Scream and Trollbane, they've already been recruited at this point, and the third horseman, that's going to be... Inquisitor White Mane was a priest whose personal tragedy forged an intense connection with the light. Her zealous power of will is necessary to strengthen the bond of the Four. Travel to the Scarlet Monastery and raise the High Inquisitor from her tomb inside the cathedral. We must fall. There are few in this world who have lived with more conviction than High Inquisitor White Mane. Death has a way of quelling the madness of a mind. I'm sure she will serve the Ebon Blade without compromise. We have but one single purpose here, to raise Sally Whitemane as a Death Knight of the Ebonblade. But while we're here, we also take on the remaining Scarlet Crusaders, and we use their fallen against them by resurrecting them as ghouls. The Scourge has risen against us. Send the invaders back to their graves! Should you fall, know that your sacrifice will bring me great glory this day! Are there none among the Scarlet Crusade with the strength to challenge me? Trollbane has taken upon himself to coat the walls with the Crusader's blood. And man, oh man, does it look amazing. Those who terrorize the innocent have no place in this world or the next. The Realm of Shadow offers little respite to the souls of the wicked. You defile the sanctity of this chapel with your presence. The holy light shall burn you! By the power of the light, I will banish you, Scourge! My faith has forsaken me? Death can bring a silent peace to the soul, but not for Sally. Her death is one of regret and unrest. We will offer her the chance to atone for her crimes. The price will be high, but they have little doubt that she will pay it. Rise up, High Inquisitor! Your Death Lord calls you back to this world. I... I live? Is the anguish of death over? We have not come to offer peace, High Inquisitor. Why then? Why have you done this to me? The Day of Reckoning is at hand. The Burning Legion has come to destroy our world. The Knights of the Ebon Blade have come to offer you a chance at atonement. Atonement? I doubt that such a thing exists for me. Join us, and we will find out together. Indeed we shall. There is no greater hatred and scorn in this world than death would exist in Sally's heart. The Burning Legion will pay for all that they've taken from her. 
The day of judgment awaits, but theirs is at hand, and she will be the executioner's blade. She will not rest until every demon lays dead, their corpse paving the very ground that she walks. We do what the living cannot. The fourth and final horseman, the one that will lead them all into battle, was chosen by the Lich King to beat Tyrion Fordring. That meant that the journey took them to Light Hope Chapel, the damned place where Darien once sacrificed himself, where he and the Death Knights once stepped away from the damned path. And it is not only the resting place of Tyrion, it's also the Paladin Order Hall. Interred just beyond those walls is the body of Tyrion Fordring, one of the greatest champions our world has known. The Silver Hand will not give him to us willingly, so we will take him by force! Death Lord, we will begin at your command. We will there is a tomb behind the chapel where the power of the light is weak. Raise the dead from within the tomb, and it will distract the guards long enough for us to make our way to the chapel. Tread carefully, Death Knight. This is holy ground, and we have little tolerance for your kind. My lord, we're under attack! It, it's the Ebon Blade! Tyrion's body rests below us, in the Hall of Champions. We will join you shortly, Death Lord. You will not succeed, Tyrion. The Light will not allow it! It's Lady Liadrin holding down the forts as we fight her in the House of Champions. It seems like the High Lord is out questing elsewhere, possibly finding the Legion, but Liadrin is not the final line of defense. Without monsters, there can be no heroes. The time has come, Death Lord. Tyrion Fordring awaits. At last, the four horsemen shall have their leader. What is this? No, I will not allow the Ebon Blade to fall! The Death Gate? Take it! The light itself protected one of its greatest champions, and Darien heroically sacrificed himself to get us out of there. You would imagine that the Lich King would know that Light Hope is out of the reach of death, or perhaps he actually did. Hi Lord, we must do something before it's too late. The light has ravaged his body. There is nothing we can do for him. Even in a lifetime of war, I have never before seen such sacrifice. Darien Mulgrane has sacrificed more for the Ebon Blade than any other. His body lays before you, broken, scarred. But death is for the living. It has no power over the damned. before you, Death Lord. Command him to rise. Darien can see now what he did not see before. His destiny were written long ago, and like his father before him, he will take his position as leader of the Four Horsemen. Horsemen! Our destiny is at hand! The Burning Legion shall tremble before the power of the Four Horsemen! And so, Sally Whitemane rides her undead steed into battle, flanked by Nusgrim, Trollbane and Mograine. The Four Horsemen took on the forces of the Legion, and their sacrifices played a key part in saving the world from the flames. The future is still very much unknown. The world might have been saved, but the battle for Azeroth is upon us. Alliance and Horde are duking it out, while other threats lurk beneath the surface. Who knows if and when the Four Horsemen will ride again, but for now, this is the story of Sally Whitemane. A tragic story. A child who saw her parents and siblings fall into undeath. A priest who fell in with a corrupted organization. Now she's an undead herself, trying to atone for the sins of the past, and even becoming a hero within Heroes of the Storm. No one expects the Scarlet Inquisition! As always, thank you very much for watching everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos, leave a like if you enjoyed this one, and until next time guys, see ya! 
Thanks, Novel, for telling us Sally's story. And this brings us to the end of another hour of Copson Radio. In this case, episode 114. And this leaves me with only one more task, which is to thank the contributors of the show. We have the following. So, so breezy. Hero Maradex, Charm, and Novel 87. Thank you everyone for allowing us to use your content to play it on the show. Thank you, dear listener, for downloading and listening. I hope that you have had fun, and if you've learned something as well, even better. I will take my leave of you now and head back to death knell. I hope that you all stay well until next time. Be careful, stay healthy, and see you in a couple of weeks. Bye everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Cops Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at copsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at copsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash copsrunradio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Cops Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time. <laughs>